I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Welcome to the show. I'm Scuba. This is the Not A Diving Podcast. Right, up the front this week, I've got to tell you about our pledge drive on Patreon. If you're a regular listener to the show, you will know that we do a Patreon offering to help support. If you're listening to this version of the pod, it means you're not a Patreon subscriber. But for a week, we are really ramping this up. So if you join this week, there's a couple of pretty cool benefits which you will receive. So if you join the solidarity tier, which is the regular tier, $4 a month, you will receive a 50% off voucher to use at our Bandcamp store, which is, I think, a nice little gesture. But if you join the musicality tier, which is $10, you will receive, free of charge, a musicality t-shirt and it's an awesome t-shirt it's charcoal gray it's got the hot flush logo it says musicality it's a bad boy shirt unisex you can choose your size all that stuff so that's 10 bucks a month you don't have to make any sort of commitment and um yeah it's pretty good patreon.com slash scuba official if you're a fan of the show want to get involved with the community and it is an awesome community we have a great discord server with a private area for patrons and uh yeah i think we would um like to have you so if you're feeling generous or just feeling like you want to take advantage of this great offer that we're uh <laughs> giving out then yeah sign up patreon.com slash scuba official there's a bunch of bonus content that will be going up this week to celebrate this pledge drive thing that we're doing so there should be something new every day this week on the patreon feed starting tomorrow so get involved get involved so this week on the show we have a guy who's made maybe my favorite album of a year Maybe my favourite album of the last few years, actually. It's called When the Lights Go, and it's by Totally Enormous Extinct Dinosaurs, who I shall be referring to henceforth as Teed, um, <laughs> for, yeah, just reasons of linguistics. We've been talking about getting him on the show for a little while. It's great that it's finally happened. In addition to the album, he's written a really interesting article on Billboard recently, which we discuss at length. 
And he is just an interesting guy with an interesting story, certainly an interesting career. He released his first album on Polydor back in 2012 and has not released a lot since. So there's a 10-year gap. And there's a bunch of interesting stuff to go through to explain that, which we do. It's a pretty long conversation, but a really, really interesting one. So I think this is a great episode. I was excited to have the conversation, even though I had a pretty bad case of flu when I was recording it. I dosed myself up with just unbelievable amounts of drugs, prescription and non-prescription to to get through the conversation. I think I just about managed to sound coherent. It took a little bit of editing in places to um, maintain coherence but um yeah this is one that i'm really really happy with so i think you're going to enjoy it too just before we get started if you're not gonna join our patreon pledge drive leave a review or rating wherever you're listening to this podcast follow the spotify playlist there's a link in the show notes to that with a bunch of teed music this week bunch of tracks from that album, which I love so much. There's a track called The Sleeper, in fact, which I really think is just a brilliant, brilliant piece of music. It could be like a key track on a Journey album or something like that. It's genuinely great. It really plucks up my heartstrings. It's brilliant. And um, yeah, join us in the Discord if you're not doing Patreon. Like I said, there's a private area on the Discord for patrons, but there's a Hot Flush Discord too, which includes a channel for the show. And it's fine if you don't want to do the Patreon thing, honestly. But if you're going to do it, then this is the week to do it. So, without further delay, here is Teed. Totally enormous extinct dinosaurs. Welcome to the show. How are you doing? I, actually, before I ask you how you're doing, I'm just going to say that I'm going to call you Orlando, if that's okay. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I pref- I'd prefer that. <laughs> <laughs> Okay. Um, right. It's great that we're doing this. It's been in the works for a little while. Mm-hmm. Those listeners who heard me on Rinse FM on Friday night will know that I'm a little bit under the weather today. So um, if I lapse into incoherence at any point, it's due to the biblical amounts of painkillers that I've taken in order to get ready, ready for this episode. But um, fingers crossed, it'll be okay. So what I've prepared for this consists of two parts basically i want to talk about a new album which i absolutely love thank you i genuinely think it's brilliant it's the kind of thing that um if i'd heard it a few years ago i would have been like really bitter and jealous about it but i've kind of reached a point in my life now where i can be happy for other people's um you know <laughs> creative success <laughs> thank you so um yeah Glad to hear that. congratulations on it honestly but there's a really interesting story which is the the length of time between your two albums 10 years and the way you've done them, so the first one being on a major and the, the new one you've released yourself, essentially. So this, that's a topic that I really want to get into. But the other, the other side of it is this um, article that you wrote for Billboard, which I found highly interesting and contains some overlaps with topics I discussed with Elijah on the podcast a couple of weeks ago. So I figured let's do that first. It was basically seven lessons that you have learned from your time in the music industry was essentially what the article was. Yeah. So, I mean, so I've got a little, I've got a few questions for each lesson, basically. So let's let's just work through them if you, if you don't mind. Okay, great. So lesson lesson one was understanding the value of your music. And there's a couple of things here that I wanted to, to draw out. Well, first, first of all, like identifying the difference between fans and casual listen, listeners of music. And like the way that the stats and, you know, the kind of metrics that you get, which is another 
general topic, but like how that can affect your perception of your own art. So can you tell me a little bit about that? Yeah. Uh, well, I think, f- first of all, it's very, very, very difficult to talk about value in music um, and really confusing. Uh, and I'm definitely no expert on it. Um the thing with the sort of casual listener and what we consider the fan right now, I think, is that we have sort of tricked ourselves into thinking that um, someone is only a fan or you only have a fan if they follow you on Instagram, follow you on Twitter, buy your albums, uh, buy your concert tickets and buy T-shirts. And of course, like, that's a very extreme thing to do as a fan and and I'm sure everyone listening right now is a music fan and very few people follow their favorite artists on all their social medias buy all their merch and buy all their music um but the goal seems to be apparently or we've persuaded ourselves that the goal is to sort of uh bring people on board to that level of fandom and that's madness i think that's impossible and it's crazy and it's a like um unrealistic expectation of your listeners and what your music should do and i think it's worth remembering that like um some of the best and most precious musical experiences for people will happen when they listen to artists that they know nothing about and aren't fans of and haven't ever seen a concert of and it could just be one song of yours that really touches somebody and helps them through their day or gives them a great moment on the dance floor or something. And that that's incredibly valuable and wonderful. And we should be um, aware of the preciousness of that and, 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 and less focused on this like extreme version of sort of fandom, which is all encompassing. Um, I just saw uh, that um, Hot Chip sold out five nights at Brixton Academy, right? And mm. which is awesome, uh, great band, amazing band. And but if you go on their social media, it's not like there's twenty thousand people commenting on every Instagram post they do. There is no alignment between um, ticket sales and social media uh, interaction and stuff. And that's a good thing. It's yeah. Great. I mean, not not necessarily anyway. I mean, I think not with some acts it, yeah. it correlates, but yeah, you're absolutely right. Yeah. It's, it's not necessary. Sorry, I interrupted you there. No, no, no. I was I was beginning to waffle. Please take over. <laughs> no, not at all. <laughs> I mean, I, I think like having a, a sort of objective view of your own art is an extremely difficult thing to do as a musician, and like valuing it yourself, and you know, coming to terms with your output, with your own output. And I've certainly struggled with that over the years and it can be extremely tricky. Now, there was a a quote that I pulled out from this part of the article, which has nothing to do with that, actually. But it's to do with future developments in in making a better system. And it was, um, so the quote is, there could be a time in our future where copyright law, technology and ideas around infrastructure combine together to make a healthy system. And that really got my kind of antenna twitching because we've talked about stuff like Web3 and all that kind of stuff on the show before. And I wanted what you exactly sort of had in mind there. Well, I'm, I'm wary of talking about Web3 because I, I feel like I, I don't know enough and I feel like it's sort of, a, it's very vague. 
it's sort of like the whole thing is very big. <laughs> yeah, sure. But Absolutely. what I'm what I'm getting at with that is that there could be um, a, a system where if somebody uses or listens to your music, um, there's a very simple mechanism by which you're rewarded for that, and it's transparent, and there's no no or many less fewer sorry um uh, middlemen um and uh you know you can track the use of your song um collection agencies would wouldn't be so sort of like mysterious and crooked and you wouldn't be waiting two years for accounting from a record label um uh and you wouldn't be paying them so much and and so I guess that sort of falls into the sort of blockchain conversation. Um, but I, again, don't know anything about that, really. I, I sort of understand some kind of theoretical elements of it. It also seems to be a lot of hype and bluster. Um, oh, for sure. <laughs> yeah. But that, that's what I think could, could we... I mean, that's certainly possible. Already, I think it's possible. It's just that you'd be dismantling a huge machine that makes a lot of money for some people and 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 they don't want it to be dismantled right they they don't want artists to be fully independent because there'd be a lot of people who are out of work um and a lot of like big financial institutions would be annoyed yeah i mean like the idea of full transparency is not one that you'd exactly associate with the music industry is it really (laughs) no no i mean it's like that See it, the business model of a lot of the big labels and publishing houses. Well, more the labels and the publishing houses, but the business model is basically: if you want to get paid, you have to audit us. Um, like right. deliberately murky, and um, you know the 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 payment of what's it called Universal their Uniport thing. It takes two years because it takes two years for them to do what they want with your money. Um, And that's just crazy that we've allowed it to continue for so long. Yeah, that system where you have to create a login and it's all extremely opaque and they just like it really feels like they're making it difficult, deliberately making it difficult for you to get your money. It's such an an insult, you know? Absolutely, absolutely. With the copyright law... Uh, reference in that quote. Did you have anything in mind there? I was. I re- recently read a really interesting book about the KLF, which included some stuff about their general kind of like kind of anarchistic views on copyright law. Did, did you have anything specific in mind there? Well, I think it's. I would. I'd only say this. I think it's sort of up for grabs. I don't. I think we've taken it for granted a bit, and I think the copyright law is a good thing. Um, and should be tight. I don't think it should open up to chaos at all. But um, I think it could get crazy and very chaotic and less protective of intellectual property. And and I I worry about that because I think that we, we don't... It's one of those things where we've got so far away from the initial conversations and um, actual lawmaking that I think people take it for granted, basically. Uh, and that that worries me. So I hope it gets right, so tighter. 
I, I'm a big fan of that German. Okay, so you're not, not a KLF dude. I, I love KLF, but creatively, <laughs> um, and uh, I can't remember, I read one of the books while I was finishing this album and I, and I was really inspired by it, but I, uh, I'm, I think it's more important to me that like there is a uh, stable um, middle class of artists and that that's a that's a career path that's possible for people and i think it's important for society and i think part of that is that we have laws around copyright okay stable middle class of artists that's a really great term actually because i mean a big problem with the industry as a whole is that how is how top heavy it is and this the degree to which it reflects the the whole economy actually like the top like 0.1 of a percent or whatever really dominates the revenue across all areas of the industry actually i mean there's i mean there's there's stuff that we're going to get into later on about the the mix of um live recorded and um sorry live and recorded music but yeah i think having that reasonably well paid middle section of artists people who deserve to make a living essentially and are under the current system find it tough I think would mm-hmm. you know, improving that would be extremely valuable. It would, and it's quite hard to persuade the public that artists deserve to be paid. Um, there's a bit of resentment around music and money, and I, 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 I think also that people have a misunderstanding about what people are getting paid, and certainly uh, I've been around long enough and been in. In, in different points in my career where people just assume that I'm a millionaire or something because, <laughs> you know, I've released music with lots of record labels and done remixes for people and DJed all over the world and whatever. And it's like, well, actually, I've been just paying my bills the whole time. Um, I wish I was a millionaire. Um, but there's, a, there's, a, there's a, a misconception out there about it and a resentment, a natural resentment that I, I understand, you know, it would be everyone likes the idea of being paid to make music, um, gets a bit jealous of it or something. Um, but yes, I think I, th- I think it's it's good for everybody to have. It would be a good symptom of society if there could be a, a, a nice chunk of of well paid artists just that don't have to be hyper successful, don't have to be hyper famous, don't have to compromise. Um, towards like pure commercialism to make a good living. Yeah, and as I said, I think it reflects it correlates rather to the the economy as a whole. So, yeah. okay, keeping on money. Lesson two: be aware of wealth comparison and the truth about private island posts. This is something which really gets <laughs> up my nose. I have to say yeah. the uh, the private jet selfie. Tell me about this. Yeah. Well, I. I think the the reason I wrote this paragraph really was because I've had so many conversations with friends and and artists of all ages and generations where they're just sort of spiraling about um, uh, rich people basically and uh, realizing that there are people who run record labels and people who are artists who um, and and you know this this is not their fault but they. <laughs> They don't need to earn money from music. They're already very wealthy, and uh, this isn't like their primary source of income. So they can sort of um, fanny about, and then on top of that, there will be um, you know flagrant displays of this like ultra wealth on social media, which 
a lot of people love to see. So it's very highly rewarded um, with likes and comments and stuff. So it just confuses people and it upsets people. And I think that we, you know, when you're, especially when you're starting up uh, and you're trying to work out how to get paid out of this industry and then you see how some people are living, um, you might get very, very confused and, and, you know, release a bunch of music for two years and then look around and go, hang on a second, I haven't made any money yet, but how is this person out there spending, you know, the whole summer in Ibiza and the whole winter in Tulum and Bali? Um, well, it's because they've got really rich parents. That's it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, like, that's absolutely. it. So don't, like, don't sweat it. Like, you know, build your own business, but you can't, you, you can't compare yourself to those people without understanding that they have rich parents and that's it. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. The, um, <laughs> I mean... And it's really annoying. <laughs> <laughs> so... I mean, why why are these posts so successful, do you think? Oh, uh, that's a good question. Um, well, uh, damn, I, I, don't, I, don't, I don't really know. <laughs> I, I'm sure I'll figure that out in tomorrow or something. I'll start thinking about it. It's got to pluck at some, you know, deep-rooted kind of, you know, instinct, some kind of evolutionary instinct that we kind of value things which yeah. seem to be... Uh, like the mark of um, security, I guess, or some, some something yeah. like that, maybe. Symbols of wealth, yeah, and, and sort of, I don't know, I don't know, symbols of wealth and success. Um, but I, I don't... Look, there's a moment where you see your favourite artist step onto a private jet if, and you might be like, wow, yeah, amazing, my guy made it, that's wicked, like, double tap that photo. Um, or you know i understand that or but and and a lot of people do value a louis vuitton bag like they think that that's cool right like i don't know <laughs> i don't know i don't know it's so weird it's it's like that that's just you're just walking around with your bank balance like on your shirt right um, right yeah. which is really really strange but plenty of people like that i mean for really. sure i mean i i listen to the Tom Segura and Burt Kreischer podcast, uh, which is uh, for people who are not aware, they're two, two American comedians who are extremely funny. But as they've become more and more successful, they, I mean, and they do it in a very much a sort of comedian, like pretty self-aware kind of a way, but they spend quite a lot of their podcasts these days discussing spending enormous amounts of money, <laughs> you know, and... Wow and talk about getting on private jets and stuff and what how they're going to travel between shows and it's always like what kind of jet are you going to get it's like guys you're you're comedians like yeah and, and that there is there is a degree of self-awareness but not quite enough you know yeah people definitely get sort of seduced by it i think it corrupts um for sure yeah well that, okay so yeah corrupt so basically i the, the question i had written down actually was how corrosive to culture specifically like is the kind of visibility of this kind of economic inequality Ooh, well that's a big question and i think that it's tied into the i, I that immediately makes me think about the creative decisions that artists make in right. order to get to that point um and then the work that we're putting out into the world um 
And I think about like the sort of like young artist who has a very pure thought of what their vision is and they uh, really want to like put something wonderful and beautiful out into the world and like something that no one's ever done before. And then how five years later they can be like, well, you know what, if we just chop off that intro and turn up the vocal and like, like let's get someone else to write a hook and uh, let's make the whole thing two minutes and 40 seconds long and blah, 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 blah. And like compromise, 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 because then we're going to get to that point and I'm tired of not making any money and I want to make money and blah, blah, blah. And basically the sort of purity of the creativity gets dissolved into something that's jaded and and then that's what we're putting out into the world. Um, and who could measure like what shitty music does to society? But um, we can certainly measure what really, well not measure, but you can feel what really great music does um, to a group of people and to yourself. Um, so yeah, I mean, impossible to answer, but really interesting to think about. It's the sort of thing that would probably you know, I'd be better discussed over sort of six months. Um, (laughs) So I don't know. Yeah, yeah, fair. Okay, lesson three, everything is negotiable. And the the kind of big quote in this is, there's no such thing as an industry standard. And this just reminded me of talking to my first ever manager when we were talking about what commission he was going to get. And he just said, well, the industry standard is 20%. And I was like, okay, okay. (laughs) Yeah. So tell me, tell me about this. Well, my biggest thing that I wish I'd uh, been able to do from the beginning of my career is sort of negotiate and advocate for myself. Um, I wish that that was a skill I had already in my life. And I certainly wish that somebody had sort of like taught me that or shown me that it was allowed. Um, I think a lot of artists at the beginning and a lot of people in in their early 20s are sort of like... uh, they don't have the confidence yet and they also feel that everything is a fortunate opportunity you know that they're lucky to be there the truth is that you like you're in your most valuable stage of your life as like a early 20s with lots of ideas and lots of energy um so that's one thing to say but uh yeah that there's 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 a million deals that get put in front of you and i'm not just talking about record deals and publishing deals i'm talking about like you know, if you're arranging with a manager what your agreement is or if you're arranging with a PR company how much to pay them to work on your EP or something like. Basically, everyone's going to try and charge you as much as possible. That is, that's how it works. And it's horrible. And if you don't push back, your business won't work. If you pay everybody who you're employing what they ask to be paid your business won't work. There's no way you can be a professional musician unless you are a aforementioned son of a daughter of a millionaire. Um, it just, the equation doesn't add up. So you, if a PR company want to be paid $1,000, you should offer them $500 and just hold fast on it and then find, you know, find a middle ground or whatever. But do not just say yes, ever. <laughs> um, and then, yeah, the industry standard thing. I mean, I think that's uh, one of the sort of classic cons, especially managers. Um, uh, they, they, they don't want to be challenged at all. And, um, you know, why not 
like why do you have to round it up to 20 20 um, percent is a lot um, and there's different deals everywhere a lot of people don't know that uh, for example, agents aren't always paid a commission. And when very big artists get to a certain point, they might put their agent on a salary or they might put their agent on a fee per show. Um, you know, if you're selling out arenas, uh, why on earth would you give your agent a commission? Like at that point, um, that would just be crazy. Why not just give them, you know, 50 grand a show or whatever it is? Um, and of course you can do that you can negotiate that um, so at, at all stages of the, the the musician's career I think they should be encouraged to negotiate and push back and think very hard about whether somebody is actually worth the money or the percentage yeah I mean this really resonates with me about eight or nine years ago I had a kind of epiphany which was caused by looking at my bank account essentially after having had a really yeah. what looked like a successful period in my career and just realized I hadn't really made any money yeah and it's just like fuck this is bad and then as a result like just chopped everyone and did essentially what you've just described and then looked at my bank account like every week for the, for the for like the the period hence you know and it yeah. like you really have to take responsibility for it and it's so easy not to especially when you're young and you don't really know what things should be because yeah. yeah. you're you're absolutely right to say that when when you're a kid like you're at your most valuable but you're also at your most ignorant yeah so like it's very difficult i think for young people like starting out to really know like the rules of the game you know and there are so many sharks out there you know even the even people who are good are you know look, looking after themselves as well you know of course the priority the, 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 that yes uh you at the beginning of my career i assumed that like if i was working with a manager or a record label they have my best interests at heart and they care and they want me to do well, but they have their own interests at heart. And that's absolutely fine. You just have to realize that. Um, the other thing to say about this is like, and one day I'm sure we'll all come clean. Um, and pe people would be amazed at the artists I know in and at the point of their careers that they're at, that they're not making any money. Um, people with millions and millions and millions of monthly listeners and touring all around the world all the time. And the record label are taking a cut of their touring income. They're on like a 16% royalty for their albums and, uh, and you know, standing behind hundreds of thousands of dollars of, um, of costs on each record. And, but they're like, you know, superstars. And they're not, no, they haven't bought a house. They haven't bought a car. They, they're, you know, um, and there's a lot of these, there's, that's kind of most artists. Um, uh, I think, you know, your listeners and this podcast is obviously like a lot of dance music fans and electronic music fans. And it is really important to like understand that DJ culture and the business of DJing is a different bit business model to live acts and pop stars and singers and indie bands and stuff. That is a different thing because uh, we have a different ecosystem with the DJ culture. Um, so I do think there's almost, there is a way through to get to a sort of like headliner point where you are making a good living um, in DJ world, but in other, oh, absolutely. you know, in the sort of like being a band or 
um, being a producer or a singer, um, it's really, really hard, especially if you sign some kind of agreements when you're 21 and you don't know what you're doing and then you're locked in for 10 years. I think there's a, there's a really good reason why there's so many artists that don't get past a second album or don't get past, you know, f- five or six years and then they're, they're basically burnt out. Yeah, I mean the DJ model is a is a thing of beauty, really. If like if anyone was yeah. wondering why Calvin Harris was the highest paid musician in the world for a while, it's because he was DJing basically and essentially turning up with a USB stick, and you know, in the same way that your average techno DJ does, not paying for his production and getting paid, you know, maybe seven figures for certain shows, you know, or probably most of the shows actually. So, I mean, it's just not possible to do that if you're a band, and there are obviously inherent problems with that. I mean, we'll talk about the um, the live music side yep. uh, later on. But yeah, I mean, it's um, yeah, there there are problems all throughout the whole thing. But but the DJ model is, as I said, like with my own case, I was able to turn around my you know the the financial side of my career because of a DJ model. It just wouldn't have been possible otherwise. Yeah, basically. So lesson four: momentum. And you talk about cultural gatekeepers in this and their declining importance. And you mentioned in particular Pitchfork, and, and I guess that just sort of correlates to the press, right? The music press, which I am routinely extremely disparaging about much of the consternation of my press agent. Um, <laughs> so um, actually, just before we talk about that, though, you mentioned um, the lo- you're talking about the last 600 years you pick out as a time period. Was is that like just the period since the Renaissance, Renaissance music, or how did you get that 600 years figure? Um, I'm just being a geek. I mean, I'm a I'm a big I'm a, I love classical music and I listen to music from the last 600 years. So uh, and I you know you look at the composers that have. Um, in their time or posthumously had great careers and their music has survived. And it's been about a lot of it is to do with volume and obviously quality of work, but putting out a lot of good music and um, keeping that, that tap flowing. Um, and so I just think that, yeah, that that's like proven throughout history. Um, if Mozart had written two symphonies, he wouldn't have been... Um, Mozart he wrote 50 or something sure um, so yeah I think I just think it's sort of a proven thing yeah yeah sure okay so let me ask you about cultural gatekeepers though but with regards to classical music though because the repertoire that gets performed is pretty narrow when you consider like how much of it there is right I mean if you go to you know the Barbican or the Royal Opera House or the La Scala or wherever like there's a pretty uh, you know, as I said, narrow range of of operas or symphonies or whatever, which which get aired. Yeah, and that's because of cultural gatekeepers, right? I think it's because of ticket sales, actually, um, mostly because sure. But, but I mean, those two things are not those fill out an opera hall. Those two things are not unrelated, though, right? No, no, okay. But um, if we went back forty or fifty years, it would be an even smaller repertoire of classical music that was being performed i think it has opened up okay yeah um i mean for example like baroque music wasn't really being sort of had this massive resurgence in the 60s and 70s Mm. 
Um, and they're still, you know, uncovering pieces and recording them for the first time. And things are, things are increasing in popularity. Um, I love um, seeing the metrics of composers, you know, like composers who died 500 years ago and mm -hmm. they've got, you know, they've got pieces with millions of streams. And <laughs> um, I love seeing that. And, and how popular it is and you know there's no PR agent working on that stuff directly I mean for the record label or something for a release but um, the quality of the music and the beauty of the music just like shining through the centuries is a beautiful thing to see but yeah I think it's got better and I and and I think that there is like obviously a snobbery around classical music and the industry and and people feel that you know a lot of people feel that they're not allowed to listen to it or that, that it's sort of like um not for them or whatever and i think that's i mean a problem. It, it can be if i could interrupt you there like it can be quite daunting i mean i i did music a level when i like played classical music when i was a kid and was dragged to operas by my parents and, and, and all that kind of stuff yeah so i was I, I think if you haven't had any kind of grounding in it as as a kid it must be pretty daunting. Yeah. Just knowing where to start as much as anything else. Definitely, you know? definitely. But I think, like, I think, but Mo like something like a Mozart opera, I 100% believe can be enjoyed by anyone. I'm not just enjoyed, like marveled at by anyone. Yeah, yeah. It's so entertaining. It's so entertaining. Um, yeah, it is tricky because, you know, as an example, um, do you remember that? I don't know why this just came to mind, but you remember the, that film, The King's Speech? right mm. that was i guess it's like 10 years old or something and I, I i just remember watching it and at the end he gives his big speech and in the background of his big speech is a is is a beethoven symphony um number seven or so, i think and uh the scene is moving because of the beethoven and I could imagine, <clears throat> you know, if I was watching that and I hadn't heard that piece of music before, I'd be like, wow, 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 I've, I've got to find that piece. It's amazing. And then you go onto the internet and, or Spotify or whatever, and there's uh, 500 recordings of that piece. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, like what, like that immediately is just like, what the hell is going on here? Um, uh, and that's, yeah, I think it's really hard. And, and Spotify, I've spoken to Spotify about this it's really, there's no way to navigate the classical music world there because what you really want to be searching is composer, piece, performer, year of recording and record label. Um, but you can't do that. But that's how, that's how you would want to be searching for that music. There's that Adagio platform. I think it's called Adagio, right? Um, I haven't seen that. No, I'm sure it's called Adagio, which I am a subscriber to. And the best thing about it actually is the search engine. So right. you can search by all those things that you just mentioned. And, you know, it does a really good job of uh, enabling you to navigate through the, the various different recordings, like going back down the years, you know, because... A, oh, okay, cool. A recording that's been... You know, there's some absolutely seminal stuff recorded in the 60s or even the 50s. But it sounds very different, right? Yeah. But you're listening to these um, like legendary performers, but in, in a very different um, way. Yeah. And then it, it all changes in the 70s and when it gets to the 80s. And, and then some of them, like the, the, the recent uh, recordings. And it's crazy how much, uh, how much new stuff goes up. Like, yeah, some of these pieces get recorded every couple of years. 
Yeah, 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 absolutely. So cool. I love it. It's such an active um, culture. It's brilliant. It is. So the music press then, Pitchfork. Tell me why you hate Pitchfork. (laughs) Well, I think this is obviously, as an artist, there's going to be a personal element to this. And um, no one's ever sort of like written a horrific review of me or anything like that. It's not that that kind of situation. But I am looking for, you know, I like the idea of, 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 of nurture in creativity. I like things having a positive impact. Um, and I think that in the sort of 2010s, sort of 2008 to 2014, I really felt like the online press was basically a tool of like a couple of guys who were sort of bullied in the playground who wanted to be popular. And the way that they did that and the energy that they put out was just about like throwing jabs, unnecessarily unnecessary jabs. And there was a lot of just takedowns a lot of like associating themselves with acts that they really just wanted to be backstage with um, and like, you know, saying horrible things about people that they thought were easy targets. Because remember that like there was one guy who started Pitchfork, right? It was his baby. Um, And there were some, I don't know who they were, but there were some people behind Fact Magazine. And um, there was a period there where Fact Magazine was a really horrible, toxic, community um back believe it or not in like facebook days where that that their facebook page was just like blokes being horrible about other artists and sort of you know the easiest thing to do to sort of write nasty things about people on the internet um and there was no effort from these publications to sort of make it into a more pop um uh, positive and nurturing nice community nor was it really ever sort of like right well let's make this about critical writing which i really want in music i really think that we need good criticism um and that and obviously it does happen um but yeah no that 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 after a while that that just pissed me off and especially you know when i was coming up there was this sort of thing of like well you know we need a good review in the guardian right and it's like really do we and now thankfully like you know nobody gives a shit what the guardian think about an album um and what's his name alexis petridish what's his name i shouldn't mispronounce (laughs) his surname petridis yeah yeah, um i mean all his columns are just about him they're just about his right he's the kind of aa gill of uh, music yeah yeah it's just him (laughs) it's just his his spite for the world and or what he thinks is cool based on how he wants to see himself. Um, and fuck that. Fuck that. I don't, I don't need that. None of us need that. We've talked on the show before about how reviews have declined in their relevance. I mean, do you really think they are totally irrelevant now? Uh, I don't think that they should be totally irrelevant, but I think that they are kind of irrelevant. Um, yeah, I mean, again, it goes back to this thing of like, what music fan has the time? Um, I know a couple of guys in their like early forties who still read Pitchfork every day, but that's because it was sort of like a formative thing for them growing up. But you know, who, who has the time to like, look at the artist's Instagram and then go to Spotify and listen to the album and then Google Pitchfork to read the review and then buy the t-shirt and do all the stuff like they're just going to go and listen to the record. 
um, and and flick through it and make their own mind up. I mean, I suppose the function of reviews in the, uh, the sort of peak of the music press was a music discovery angle, right? So you had trusted writers who, you know, you would read regularly and if they liked something, you could usually extrapolate that it was good. Right. And, and, and I'm being, I'm being a bit spicy here. Like I think that when it got, when it, when, when it started getting toxic was when the comment section opened up basically. And when the, the algorithm started getting fed by outrage and, and that, that's when, you know, that's what I experienced. And, and I, I just hated seeing it. I still hate seeing it. It still exists. I mean, so like RA for music, dance music fans would be the, the the notable one here and how they closed down their comment section, which was, it did get a little bit over the top at certain points. And I certainly, <laughs> yeah. I certainly fell foul of it myself on, on occasion. Um, but I have to say that like, as soon as they closed it, like a lot just went away from the site. Yeah. Like, I mean, it seemed to lose something, you know? Like it's like I mean obviously it can be awful yeah but the sort of the sort of cut and thrust of it can be quite sort of invigorating yeah yeah I'm with you I mean maybe there isn't a perfect I mean there obviously isn't a sort of perfect situation here one of the only negative comments I have ever that's ever stayed with me was written on RA I did a um, get lost mix CD for Crosstown Rebels and. Um, <clears throat> And someone wrote something like, here comes Damien Lazarus to save another failing artist's career. <laughs> <laughs> and it was like a year after my album had just come out. And I was like, oh, fuck. <laughs> Ouch. Thank you, Damien, for saving my career. <laughs> yeah. Well, at least he could take credit. Yeah. He probably felt good about that. I don't know if he read it, but yeah, I'll tell him next time I see him. <laughs> Okay, lesson five, spread your bets. So, okay, so the quote from this was that, that jumped out to me was, there was a moment around 2010 when people said musicians made most of their money from touring, which is true, but I think is, well, I think it's less true now than it was then. But the, well, up until 2019, like obviously before the pandemic, like the largest part of the music industry was live. So I actually looked up the figures for this. So like tw- live music 2019 was 28 billion and live recorded music 2019 was 21 billion. So it's quite a lot bigger. Um, but but since 2010, like recorded music has, re- has grown quicker, like quite a lot quicker. And then certainly the pandemic had a big effect there. So just taking that for a moment as a sort of specific thing, do you think it's over-egged? Because I mean, I, I've I've certainly stated with confidence that like the importance of of live and touring is it a bit overplays by people? Do you think? No, I don't think it's overrated. I just think that like there's the that the other ways to make money should be recognised and taken care of too. Um, and look, I know that this could sound like I'm just like money, 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 money. I'm not like what I'm really interested in is people having like healthy, stable careers. Like that's what I want for everyone. And, and that requires taking care of finances. And, and we fantasize about like a romantic idea of the music industry where if you just write a beautiful song 
um, you'll be a made person, but it's just not like that. It's not a meritocracy. It's a cutthroat business um, and culture moves very fast. So you need to take care of your business stuff. And yes, you can make money from live, but you should also make sure that you're making a fair income from your recorded music um, just as much as, as live. And now, uh, you know, to, I mean, to be very personal and transparent about this, I've just started touring a live show again. Um, and uh, it's been a really long time. And um, f- the costs of touring have gone up so much. Um, I just played at <clears throat> Heaven in London did a show there and I remember I did a show there 10 years ago and when I did my show there 10 years ago I had six people in my crew uh, some of which were on stage with me but you know front of house lighting person uh, tour manager had dancers had a stage tech um, I had a we did confetti we did a balloon drop um, and uh, you know and I got paid and I just played Heaven this year, and um, I have two people in my crew. I don't have any special stuff. I've hired in, hire a bit of a lighting situation in. Um, and in the scheme of that tour, um, I'm losing money and I'm not getting paid. Wow. Do you remember what the difference of ticket prices w- was there? Ticket price is the same. Ticket price is basically the same, and mark my word, and please hold me accountable to this if anyone remembers me saying this, but I think in 12 months' time, ticket prices will double for small and medium-sized venues. Ticket prices for big venues have already doubled, but for for something like Heaven, I think you'll be paying 40 quid in a year's time to go and see a band. I think you're right, and I, th- I also think that, well, I think they will try that, and a lot of them will fail, and a lot of them will be gone in three years maybe a majority of them yeah it's bad it's looking bad so there's something that you know this point about live and and, and income and stuff it, it, it is personal but it's also i'm looking around at all my friends the half of them are cancelled they're touring this year and the other half are paying their crew and paying their agents and and not getting paid and like you know obviously we all love what we do but we also you know, don't work for free. Um, So a lot of people, I think, are just going to stop touring and a lot of people are looking at their record deals and stuff and going, well, hang on a second, released four albums on this label and um, I'm not seeing any money from this yet. Um, And this is throwing up a lot of questions about how bad the deals have been over the last 10, 20 years. Um, so we, and so we all need these other revenue streams and it's not like they're additional revenue streams. They're the revenue streams we should have been earning from the whole time because other people have been earning from them. Um, you know, people have been (laughs) buying houses off the back of, uh, our records and, and we haven't, um, because it's been like, well, go out and tour and you'll be all right. And now that touring isn't working, I think there's a bit of a reckoning. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think um, it's difficult to avoid talking about money with this kind of stuff, you know, because I mean, like, like as you said at the, at the top, the kind of the importance of establishing a middle class of reasonably well-paid artists, I think, is 
is such an important thing. But I mean, with regards to you know costs going up, I mean a lot a lot of this is inflation in the real economy, and the flip side of it is like the overall revenue hasn't kept pace. Obviously, I think I think that's a, a broad thing. Like for example, you know Spotify haven't put up their prices in God knows how long. Ticket prices have gone up a bit, but I mean I think. By the way, shout out to Apple for just putting up their price. That's awesome. I think the, the the basic fact of the matter is the audience is going to have to pay more. Like more value is going to have to be attached to music. And then this is the kind of point that I, I always find myself making when people are, are, are trying to argue for systems which are going to supposedly improve the, the situation of, of artists. It's just like, well, where's where's that money going to come from if, if not from the consumer of music, you know, for want of a better term? I, yeah, and I would... I'm going to briefly push back on that because Go on. there is so much money out there. It's not going to the right people. So uh, we, I, I don't think that, nece- I mean, look, it'd be great if Spotify put up their price, but Spotify is paying out hundreds of millions, I don't know, a year in licenses to record labels, billions probably. I don't, I have no idea how much it is, but there's so much money flowing from Spotify to rights holders. It's not getting to the artists because artists are in bad record deals. And if you're going to be pissed off with anybody in this streaming era, it should not be Spotify and it should not be Apple. It should be the record deals. It should be the record labels. Sorry. Because yeah, yeah, okay. I mean, I, like, I, I they're, absolutely they're, agree. They're, they're printing money. They're printing money. They're making so much cash and uh artists aren't and they're holding the money that should belong to the should should be going to the artists i think doing and to be specific about this on this in this moment like i don't think anybody should be signing anything with a record label that's worse than a 50 50 five-year license at this point like that's the worst the worst record deal you should do um and uh you know i think that's quite that can be quite hard to fight for from a lot of record labels. Certainly they're not going to approach you with that. But that's the minimum, that's the worst situation you should put yourself in. Um, and I don't think people understand that. And 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 if you are doing a 50-50 license deal and, um, you know, your song streams a few million times, you're going to see a little bit of cash there. And if there's a catalogue that you have where you have 50 songs that are, you know, you're on that kind of agreement with and they're all doing all right, there is an income. Uh, and then five years later, you get half of them back, and six years later, you get the other half back, or whatever. Then um, that's fair, and that that that's looking like somebody could be making a sort of you know a, a salary from streaming, and that's what we need. Yeah, I mean, I would I would certainly agree that the structure. I mean, everything would be better if if the structure of deals was improved in in the artist's favour. That's absolutely correct. Um, but I do think that something like 25 quid a month for a streaming subscription would be fair. Okay. Um, okay. Cool. I, 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 would, I would love that. I'm not sure if people <laughs> would pay that. I don't... I, <laughs> right. I mean, I, I, I don't... I, it's difficult to, to know. What, what have um, Apple increased the price to? Uh, so it's different. There are different tiers. Um, I know that, like, I think it's gone up by, like, 12%. For uh, normal, well, that's at least keeping pace with inflation, anyway. 
Um, and uh, I, I don't know. I don't know. I should look it up again. Um, but I know that they launched it last Monday. And everyone, you know, there hasn't been any pushback at all. Obviously, the industry are really happy about it. And I think no consumers, it's, no one's like jumping ship. Um, mm. So, yeah, no, the great stuff from Apple. Yeah, totally. Okay, lesson number six. I feel like I'm. I feel like I'm complaining about a lot of stuff. <laughs> I just want people to know. No, that not I'm at not all. A grumpy old man. I. But we're talking about industry stuff that I. Um, I think what it comes down to is that I'm like protective over myself, and I'm protective over my fellow artists, and I really hate. I hate how many stories I've seen of people just like struggling in this game. So, if I sound a bit like spicy, it's because I care. No, not at all. Uh, regular listeners to the podcast will have heard me being spicy regularly. So okay. don't, worry, don't worry about that. <laughs> um, so yeah, lesson six, metrics or data or gold rings. And you make various points which are great in this. I mean, Shazam being a good thing, I think is one. I think Shazam is one of the best things ever. Same, I love it. And it's just just fantastic. What I wanted to ask, and this, the, well, this and, and also lesson seven, are going to segue quite nicely into the discussion about your album. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. You've self-released this one. And without going too much into like how the back end is working for that that self-release like how much more are you are you looking at data now versus how your previous album campaign worked in in 2012 well in 2012 when i released my album on polydor there was a conversation about two months before the album came out that was like hey <clears throat> shall we put this on spotify um you know it doesn't really matter you can if you want to we don't have to so it was just like a completely different era and Facebook was massive. Instagram barely existed. Um, so there just wasn't the same level of data. Um, a few years ago, when I started really paying attention to the back end of Spotify and my sort of like artist portal in Spotify, I became quite obsessed with that data and looking at that data. Um, and now I'm, I, I probably check into that like once every two weeks or something and have a look at what's going on. Um, so I've been through a few phases with it, but because, because it's, because it's not that helpful. Um, there is some really cool stuff that you can see, but you're going to find out about it. If something mega is happening, you're going to find out about it without looking at all the numbers. It's going to, and then you can tune into the numbers. Um, 
yeah, so I, I got a bit of distance from it now. Right. And then one of the other things which comes out of this was like people's perception of of different metrics on on various platforms yeah and the key one for me is always like the difference of like streams versus or rather monthly listeners versus followers on a on spotify which is i think commonly or the, the monthly listeners thing is is basically a bullshit statistic which should be essentially ignored i think to a large extent yes. but but yeah. how how your followers on spotify goes up or, or goes down hopefully not goes down but how that number develops is really significant is yeah and and yeah. so even uh, i add to that that um there's a there's a in the back end you can't see this on the front end of someone's page but you can see monthly streams and monthly streams is interesting monthly listeners is not interesting and monthly listeners is a forward facing game that's the gold rings bit that's like and to anybody who doesn't understand that reference i'm talking about sonic the hedgehog um <laughs> that's just a reward uh basically for behaving the way that the that spotify wants you to behave as a content creator so putting out music at, at, in the right speed that's successful and catchy enough for people to listen to it and you're just you're just providing content for the platform um and i'm pretty sure i don't know this for for real because i i'd never be able to find out but i'm pretty sure that there's kind of like a tier system to monthly listeners and basically you know if you don't release anything that's you you get dropped down a tier um or two or three or four and if you want to bounce up like through you know from one million one hundred to two million uh you have to sort of like unlock that by releasing popular enough music at the right speed um so what by the right speed i mean like regular enough releases um so that's just a fucking game that's a fucking game but everybody talks about it everyone you know just your average music fan is going to talk about what who you know the monthly listeners of of an artist when they check them out and if you show somebody a new artist that they haven't heard of before they're going to look at the fucking monthly listeners and it's so annoying because then you're immediately listening to their music through the prism of that number whether you are a zen master or not you, you you're <laughs> you're going to be affected by that number and we're all affected by that number and i wish it would disappear Whereas monthly streams is is better. It seems crazy that they've chosen that particular thing, right? Well, it works for them because because right. uh, managers and labels and artists are all like, let's get your monthly listeners up. Yeah, yeah, right. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> they, they, people yeah. are fully invested in it. Um, and monthly listeners, I guess, means individuals, monthly individuals who are coming back and listening. Right. That's the. That would be the what that is supposed to mean so that well, that's that's the thing it, it seems like it should make sense and it seems like it should be a valuable metric but mm. as you've just described as it's not really yeah um define why shazam is so great well um first of all as a music fan i use it all the time um in clubs in cafes in airports wherever i'm always like want to find out what something is and being able to find out just by <laughs> pressing a button is incredible technology i think it's magic um and i've found a lot of music through that and and become fans of artists through that um and that's really cool 
Um, from my point of view as an artist, being able to see Shazam data, um, it, it's really cool because it means that somebody is <clears throat> somebody has made the effort to to take like three or four steps uh, to find out what a piece of music is. And that's not an insignificant thing in this digital age, right? The whole idea that you're going for with any kind of like online thing is like a one-click buy. So the few the fewest amount of steps possible before somebody's spent money on you. Um, and this is somebody pulling out their phone, unlocking it, opening up Shazam, pressing record, and then having a look. And that's actually quite a few steps so there's like a commitment level to it to the action that's really really positive and shows that your music is like actually uh creating conversation and creating action um and that's wonderful i love that it's really active basically yeah yeah get it getting the data is great isn't it it's so it feels it feels tactile in a way you know which is lots of other data yeah points, exactly yeah yeah okay so lesson number seven community which is going to neatly segue directly into the second half of this conversation. Now, you talk in the article about your experience signing to Polydor and why you wanted to sign and their efforts to keep you away from other artists on the label, which I found quite amusing. Yeah. Um, but before we talk about that, and no, in fact, let's do this first. Tell, tell, yeah, tell me about signing to, uh, tell me about that in, in specific. Uh, well, I, I had. So the, the brief signing story is that I'd, I'd done a couple of EPs with the wonderful Greco-Roman records, who um, we both know, Alex and, and that, that lot. Um, and, uh, and Annie Mack and Hugh Stevens were really supporting at Radio 1, which was incredible. And so we had this sort of thing where there was the possibility of, you know, major labels were interested um, and so we went around the, the houses in London and I met like six or seven labels, I think. Um, and I, I went with Polydor because, you know, the A&Rs, I connected to the A&Rs and I saw the other artists that had released on the label over the last couple of years. And I was like, okay, they, they have a history of kind of left field electronic music and left field electronic pop and stuff. If I could just interrupt, which artists were you thinking of in, in particular? Uh, well, they'd done Scissor Sisters and um, they just started working, I believe, with James Blake. There was Kindness was on the label. Um, uh, Jamie Woon was on the label. Um, I think LaRue. Yeah, they definitely had a good reputation at that point of, of yeah. like you say, sort of interesting uh, electronic poppy type stuff for sure. Yeah. And, and great, and credit to them. Like, I'm not going to take that away from them. There was really good stuff happening there. Um, but I naively thought that sort of like I would be entering some kind of community and that there would be some kind of like kind of family or at least like access to talking to those artists and, and, and sharing our experience and stuff. And that was just not the culture, basically. Um, even when I when I finished my album a couple of months before it came out, I said to the label and my management, I was like, hey, should we do like a sort of listening 
thing at the record label and I can play the record to everyone and I can sort of present it and talk about it and get them excited. And, and everyone was like, well, you can, but no one does that. Like, that's going to be awkward and weird. And I was like, well, fuck it. I'm going to do it. Like, let's just get some donuts and some coffee and I'll play everyone the record. And I sat down in this boardroom with like, you know, 25 people that I'd never met before and played them the record. And it was really awkward. Um, but of course, because they're working on like a hundred records, they're working on like a hundred releases and catalog and everything. And it's, it's not built really to work with an artist like me. And I understand that now, but I didn't understand that at the time. So of course I have sort of jaded feelings about working with the major label system, but I also recognize that I just had false expectations of what that would be like. Yeah. So I'd warn people off doing that without really understanding what they're getting themselves into. Yeah, I mean, I've said before on the show that you know signing to a major almost never makes sense, and yeah. like there are like a small number of of artists. Like maybe if you're going to be, you know, doing if you're you know doing billions of streams of tracks, then possibly it makes sense to have access to the infrastructure that those companies have. But even even then, I mean, if you look at, I mean, the classic example is obviously Chance the Rapper. But there are obviously many others too who have just been extraordinarily successful without that. Yeah. And and you, you know, not 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 as you said, not to be obsessed with money on this on this episode. But you make way more money if you do it all yourself. It's it's just better yeah. generally. But yeah. I mean, you you also said in in that paragraph of the article, which was the last paragraph, is like having the opportunity to interact with other artists and how important that is i mean tell me a bit more about that yeah i think like it really started for me when i kind of got on the festival circuit and and you start by sort of like you know that sort of backstage community and then you start by sort of sharing your tour stories and whatever and you know how little sleep you've had that week and and you're making friends and then and that's really nice to be like, oh, okay, you find this really hard too. <laughs> or, you know, you had a bad bad show this week too or or whatever it is. And, and, and that's lovely to find that camaraderie. And I think everybody gets that, you know, in, in, in ways. Um, it goes to another level, I think, when, you, when you've been in it for a minute and you start talking about sort of the actual releasing of music and the long-term experiences of being an artist. Um, and I'm just very grateful that I have a lot of friends and uh, close and, and not so close who, who, where we talk openly about what's going on. And, um, and I don't think I would be able to do this and I don't think I'd still be doing it if I didn't have those conversations with people uh, because I'd be so lost in it and I'd be so confused about why I feel undervalued or why I feel just exhausted or or scared or whatever um and there would be nobody you know I'd, I'd be completely alone in that and most of us are solo artists at this point you know there's very few bands left where people can sort of share the experience as a group so you know um just just incredibly important to find the people to talk to and be open about it and not and, and and also adding to that not be competitive about it and not think that we're in competition with each other because we're really 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 not in competition with each other there's space for everybody to have successful careers here 
Yeah, I mean, that's an important lesson to learn. I mean, as I alluded to at the top, I was that, that was a lesson I found quite difficult to learn. <laughs> and I was um, okay. prone to uh, comparing myself against other people and becoming a little bit obsessed with the relative levels of success. And I mean, to be honest, I actually found it quite motivating at points. But that's not a massively healthy way to go about your business <laughs> as, an, as an artist, right? No, right. <laughs> okay. So a question I wanted to ask you, which relates to this, is about living in Los Angeles, because you've you've been living there for a while, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, kind of the pandemic, things shifted in the pandemic. I've been, I've been living in other places, but I'm back here now. Yeah. I was there for seven years, basically, before the yeah, pandemic. Yeah, yeah. So a decent amount of time. I mean, I in my episode with Duke Dumont, I tried to extract from him how important or not like living in LA which is the center of the music business in certain respects like how important that is I mean and as I said like he's someone who does billions of streams and is signed to Universal and is very much ensconced in that whole major label ecosystem and I was trying to get out of him how (laughs) whether it's important to be in LA or not and he just wouldn't give me any like meaningful answers which I was quite frustrated with so (laughs) like is being in is being in LA important um, no. Okay. <laughs> uh, in terms of being part of the music industry, no. Um, there's obviously like a sort of mini circle jerk of 500 people who run around being sort of like A&Rs and artists and producers, but they all just go to the same parties and, you know, Beck will be there one week and then, you know, whatever, just like minor celebrity bullshit. Um once you've been to a few parties in the hills with people with swimming pools and nice bottles of tequila, it gets really boring really quickly. So sorry to anyone who's like aiming for that life. Um, it It's not important. Work doesn't really come from it. Um, it is very competitive and it is very bitchy. So that, that small community that thinks it's the center of the world isn't. Um, there are a lot of people here who are working really hard on the industry side and building things and artists and producers that are working really hard. But that sort of like visible sort of fancy L.A. lifestyle thing is it's not important to be here for that at all. Um, in terms of just like, you know, doing meetings, uh, one of the classic things about L.A. is that like probably about 40 percent of meetings get cancelled on the day. People it's not a, a, a hustle city like New York is. You know, people do like one thing a day, whereas in New York, people do like five or six things a day. Um, I think what it is for me is it's great as a creative person to be here, as an artist to be here, because there's a lot of space, um, both physically and mentally. And I can afford, or I could, when I moved here, afford to get a house so I could have a rent a house, so I could have a studio room and a bedroom and the rest of it. That was the reality um, a while ago. Now it's not like that. Now it's a, a very expensive city again. Yeah, prices have gone through the roof, right? In a yeah. short space of time. And then mentally, uh, if you're this kind of person, which I am, um, you can sort of not see anybody for four days if you want to and just create whereas if you're in new york or london if you walk out for a coffee or to pick up lunch you're going to bump into somebody you know life people are right in front of you but la you can sort of cocoon yourself um and i think creatively that that really works for me 
Um, also, I, I love it here and I have loads of wonderful friends here and I'm very happy. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, there's, there's the business and the personal wrapped into one with LA. I mean, a lot of amazing music comes out of there. Mm-hmm. Like, and I have lots of friends who've moved there and, and their careers have taken off as a result. Well, not as a result, as a, the two things have coincided. Yeah. Um, which is, which is the reason why I wondered and, and wanted to know the answer to that question. But I mean, I, can I add something to that? I think mm. that there's, there's what pulls you to LA and there's what pushes you away from wherever you come from. Um, and I definitely had to leave the UK because the, because to, to, the, to put it simply like the sort of resentment of ambition and enthusiasm for life in England was just wet, was just killing me. I just hate it. Um, there's a, there's a sort of like grumpiness and spite towards people wanting to do exciting things, um, and be ambitious. And I, I didn't want to be around that energy. Whereas in America, generally speaking, um, if you, walk into a party and you introduce yourself and you say, yeah, I'm a musician and I'm writing a book and I want to launch a clothing brand. Um, people are going to be like, amazing. Let me introduce you to my friends who do all those things. And yeah. if you do that at a dinner party in London, people are going to be like, fuck you, you wanker. <laughs> yeah, it's like, no, you're not. No, you're yeah. not. <laughs> it's immediately we're going to cut you down. Um, yeah. And I don't want to spend my life around that energy yeah i talked about this with elijah as well actually and he brought up this particular point about the kind of differences in, in mentality and it's a, it's a little bit of a cliche to say that americans are kind of can do people and all that kind of stuff but it, but it is true i mean like like most cliches it's, it's a cliche for a reason right it's generally more positive and less shameful i'll, I'll i think I, i'd stand behind that yeah just that kind of relationship with ambition and success like mm-hmm. at, at a general level yeah Okay, so your album, self-released, and as you've described, coming off a, an album 10 years ago on Polydor, on a major. Tell me why it took 10 years to make a record. <laughs> um, okay, well, first of all, I, I got sort of burnt out by the experience of the first record um both the releasing of the music and the touring schedule um i was touring a live show and i could do this at this point in my life because i was young and whatever but i was touring a live show that every dollar i made out of it i put back into it for years um because I had to. And then it only made me money for the last year that I was touring it, by which point I was so exhausted and felt that I wasn't presenting anything new, um, that I had to stop it, basically. You know, I just got to selling out Shepherd's Bush Empire and then they wanted me to do the Roundhouse like six months later or something. And I was just like, please stop. (laughs) I can't, I can't carry on. Like I'm, I'm, I'm too tired and I've been playing the same songs for three years and I want to, and that obviously that sounds spoiled and I was kind of spoiled. I didn't, that was also why I got burnt out was because I didn't know, I didn't recognize how well it had been going. I was always just pushing forwards, trying to make things more successful and better. 
And I never stopped and gave myself a pat on the back and said, like, this is great. You've put out a record that people care about and it's spread around the world and, you know, you should be happy and satisfied with that. I wasn't satisfied. So I was all, and nobody around me was satisfied, which was also part of the major label problem because it was, nothing is a, is a win unless it's number one album, right? Um, for them. So it, a, a sort of storm really of, of not acknowledging how well it had been going and also not taking care of myself. I was like all sort of 26 year olds, like just partying a lot and would, was going on stage drunk and getting drunk afterwards and loved all of that stuff. Um, so I just didn't really know what was going on. Um, and my plan after the record was to take, you know, a year or two to make the record, the next album. But I was living in London. It wasn't, it wasn't really clicking for me. I wasn't sure what I was doing. Um, so then I moved out to LA and I just, uh, had a bad couple of years, to be honest with you. I was pretty, something like depression, mm. but also just something like disillusionment. And I, I, I didn't have management. I didn't have a record deal and I was going around and I was meeting all these people and I was just very aware that they were all lying to me. Um, and sort of blowing smoke up my ass, horrible expression, but quite useful in this context. Um, <laughs> let me, let me jump in there for a sec. Like what happened with the Polydor deal? Oh, they, um, <clears throat> don't know if I'm, I should speak on this, but they, they, they did have an option for two more albums from me and they offered me like a, a new version of the option. And what happens when you change an option is that it 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 goes void. It voids right. the original contract. So I just was able to walk away from it, which is remarkable. Oh, okay. Remarkable. I'm so fucking grateful that I got out of that. Um, so I wasn't dropped. It was more that I was able to sort of slip out a side door. Yeah, nice. Um, and so, yeah, I was just sort of, you know, going around the houses. I was making a lot of music. I had a lot of music that I really wanted to put out, but I couldn't find anybody that I wanted to work with and that I trusted to work with. What I recognize now is also I wasn't adult enough to lead my own business. And that's where I needed to get to was basically and where I have got to is a point where I can I can do it. And I employ management companies and I employ distribution companies or I do deal with distribution companies, but it's, it's me, I'm the boss. And I couldn't do that when I was 30 years old. I didn't understand how to do that. I wasn't strong enough and I didn't have the confidence enough to do that. So I was, but I was going to meet all these people and there's something in my gut was like, don't do this, don't sign this, don't work with these people. And it took me a long time if I can just interrupt there and just compare that with my own experience, which is very much the, I mean, I, I've always released my own music since, um, since forever and I've always been the boss, but I mean, that's not always been a good thing for me <laughs> at all. And I've made so many mistakes and fucked so many things up. And sometimes I, I think that I would have benefited so much from having like more voices telling me no, basically. Right. And, I think, and as I you know, said earlier in the conversation, like 
you know, in your early 20s, you're at your most valuable, but you're also at your most ignorant. And I think having a guiding hand that's definitely, I mean, as, as you said, like they're not going to be, you know, they're not going to have your interest completely at heart, but they might enough to be to be useful. Right. Anyway, yeah. sorry, I interrupted. No, totally. And 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 there were some brilliant people who approached me. I just wasn't able to do that. Like I fully take responsibility for these years of not releasing music. I, I, I'm not pointing the finger just at the music industry. I wasn't grown up enough to operate within it, however crazy it is or whatever. Like I just, I just wasn't like ready and and. But I was making music the whole time. Very luckily, I was able to turn my live career into a DJ career. Um, and that was what like kept me afloat and I have a fantastic agent in North America who really like supported me basically. Um, uh, and then in about 2018, I sort of started coming out of the fog and I had a, um, had a birthday. Well, there's a birthday every year, but this particular one was on my birthday and, um, as a present to myself, I put one of the songs I've been hoarding up on SoundCloud and I hadn't released anything for five years and I just put a song up on SoundCloud and it was like, it was ripping the bandaid off. It was ripping the plaster off. Like I just, I saw the light again and I was like, whoa, I'm a musician. My job is to make music and put it out into the world and I need to do that. That has to happen. I need to stop whatever the fuck is going on in my life that's stopping me from releasing music and just start releasing music again and find ways through. And that's when things started sort of gathering energy for me again and, you know, experimented with self-releasing, using AWOL, doing a deal with AWOL and working with like a couple of small friends, independent labels um, and you know, working with management teams and PR companies again and finding the right people. And and generally, I feel like I was able to sort of like step into a new level of professionalism. It was much less personal for me. Um, and things have just How been... Would you, sorry, let me ask you to clarify that a little bit. Professionalism and less personal. Well, I, I think it can get really hard because obviously music is personal, right? And it's, it is wrapped up in your identity, the music you make and what you put your art that you're putting out into the world. But if, to go back, it's relate to that sort of negotiation thing. If you, if a PR company um, are asking for a thousand and you say, well, I can play 500 and they say, well, we can't do it. Um, like at a certain point in my life, that would have been upsetting for me. Like I would have been like annoyed about that to a small degree. And at this, but it's not, it's not personal. They're looking after their interests and you're looking after yours. It's fine. Um, So I'm basically able to compartmentalize the business from the the art um, is, is, is a better way of putting it. And that is a much easier way to operate. So yeah, just sort of, you know, taking some time to experiment, take some risks and, uh yeah now finally got to a point where i was able to release a record um an album um, which was always the goal for me as always to do albums um 
So yeah, it took way too long, way, way, way too long. Beyond, you know, and like five years is a long time. Once it gets to 10 years, it's not even that it's a long time. It's kind of gone over the other side of a long time. And now <laughs> right. it's just like, do you even exist anymore? It's kind of like an epoch yeah. has, has passed. All right, well, let me ask you the album question then. The notion of an album is very different in 2022 versus 2012. And even in 2012, it had been, um, it was very different to what it was like in 2002 so why was it important to release an album um i've listened to your podcast and i know that you're interested in this question <laughs> i know I, i've asked and it I, many many times yeah and I, but and i'm always interested in why you think not why you think there's another route um i think in okay so in dance music i think the 12 inch format as it were the single with a b-side is or a remix is like is, is great and it's the way to go and there's a number of reasons for that one of which like 12 tracks of house music is fucking boring um so it's nicer to put out a few singles um but outside of that uh like albums are the best man like it's the way it's a collection of songs it's a body of work um music fans but i do agree it. i do agree with that well, I, do, I mean i'm not sure i'm not i'm not sure if music fans do love it that's the thing oh they do no, no, do no. They? they they do. They absolutely do. Uh, name, like, f- look at all the biggest touring artists in the world. They all release albums. Every single one of them. Yeah, oh, sure. I mean, I, I mean, that's that's true. But that doesn't necessarily mean that music fans love them. Well, they do because they're connecting. They, that, that's that's the proof. They're connecting with the work. Like, you're putting something substantial out. <laughs> substantial. I'm, I'm not sure if I agree with that. Okay. I think music fans today connect with individual tracks more than albums. I think there's quite a lot of people, unless you're like a super fan of an act, you know, to use a sort of like a hot term. Yeah. I genuinely think today that it's they're a bit of an afterthought to most people. I mean, I, I might be wrong about that. that, that that's just the, the the sense that I have. And I think like there's this kind of sense of inertia in the music industry that we we think that we search for a degree of continuity which is not always there i think but i mean i I completely agree with you that i love albums i mean and i want to make albums but it's that sort of and this is another term that i've used many times in the show like that kind of like natural conservatism in music which really interests me that's the kind of element here that i'm trying to explore how much kind of like of that kind of natural conservative nostalgic kind of element there there is in the minds of artists when they think about how they should present their work right so that's that's why i asked that question basically right and that's definitely a thing that's definitely a factor in a lot of what we do for sure and also marketing and also from the point of view of the music fan and the consumer like they also have a conservatism they also want to buy the vinyl even if they don't have a record player (laughs) right um (laughs) Uh, I think that for whatever reasons, and you, uh, there are good ones on both sides, um, albums, it's the route. It's the route to a music career. It's the route to, like, fulfilling yourself as a, an artist. Um, and, and I don't see another way... Um, you need to present something that can be 
you need to present things in like bodies. Um, there need to be eras and uh, there need to be themes that run through your work um, for you and for the listener. Um, yeah, I just, I'm, I'm all about it. I'm all about it. And I, and, I, and I want, you know, I'd love to look back when I'm 50 and be like, yeah, I put out 10 albums. Um, so I've got a lot of work to do, but I'm, I'm planning on doing it. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I have a lot of sympathy with that view and it's by and large how I feel about my own work too. So I'm, don't get me wrong, I'm not, I'm, not, uh, I'm not seeking to criticize anyone when I ask these questions or trying to kind of mine or trying to do a kind of gotcha Kind of no, thing. no, I know. No, you're 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 right. You're asking really good questions. I mean, I I can defend it and I can attack the other side, but you anyone can do it any way they want to do it. I I just think albums are great. Well, they are. So that's that's true. Okay, so tell me tell me a little bit about how you just to widen it completely for a sec before we talk about the album in a little bit more detail. Like, how did you get into music in the first place? Were you learning instruments and stuff when you were a kid and all that? Uh, yeah, so there was... Sort of, I, I grew up... My dad's a classical musician. My dad was a, a university professor and he was a professor of music. So I grew up in a house with a big record collection, CD collection, and he... Uh, there were three pianos in the house. So... That might sound crazy right. to people, but <laughs> okay. if you know, if you if your dad's a pianist, there are three pianos in the house. Um, so there was just a lot of music growing up, and and I was really, I really like found classical music when I was a kid. It wasn't like a situation where I was pressured to be into it or anything. I just fell in love with it. Um, it, it I connected with certain pieces and composers and stuff, and then have a lot of older siblings. Um, and would obviously hear their music coming out of their bedrooms and stuff and would sort of raid their CD collections. And I was a real, like, classical music snob, basically, until I was about 11 or 12, and then I started hearing <laughs> electronic music that I started getting really excited by. Um, and that was... And I had a, I had a bee in my bonnet about repet repetition, about like looped beats. I didn't like loops when I was a kid. I thought it was lazy. And then I heard, so then I heard jungle music and I was like, this is, this drum programming is fucking sick. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I need to know all about this music and start collecting it. And um, so jungle was sort of my electronic awakening. Um, and remains like one of my passions and I, I probably listen to drum and bass and jungle every day um, I s sort of like still keeping up with the new and also just like continuing to delve into the past there um, and that brought me to sort of buying a turntable when I was 13 and starting to collect records and stuff and obviously there's that that's the that's the really Big, big picture stuff was basically I was into classical music and learning the piano and then I fell in love with jungle and drum and bass and started DJing. Got it. How about songwriting? Because that's something which is distinct from those two things. Yeah, I, I, that happened really in my 20s. Um, and by accident, um, I... And now it's my, my first love, really. Um, 
I was just when I was making tracks, I was just sort of humming melodies and stuff, and and then recording vocals and putting a lot of distortion on them or pitching them, so I couldn't hear it was me, and 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 then sort of getting to a point where I was just sort of because you can do this with a sequencer, right? You can write a bit of vocal and be like, okay, that's the verse, and you put it there where the verse is, and you're like, hang on, there's a gap there where there's no vocal. What's that going to be? And then it's like, oh shit, that's a that's a pre-chorus and and you start sort of patching it together. And now I sit down at the piano and I write a song as a songwriter and I don't do it sequenced on the computer at all. Um, but that's how that developed. And I, a lot of that was sort of finding confidence and undoing the shame around my voice um, and being a singer. And I still find it very hard to present myself as a singer even though the music I put out is almost all songs um, I sort of have to like G myself up and psych myself up and be like right you're a vocalist <laughs> so had you not sung a th- okay now hang on a sec when was the first time you sung in front of an audience well so when I was a kid I was a choir boy I was a chorister and so I was, I was like a professional singer from like eight to 13. And really that's where most of my musical education came from. Um, and probably why I'm still like a classical nerd. Um, uh, so I was doing concerts and stuff, but, and it was in this very like strict classical music world where there was a very simple idea of what's good and what's not good. Um, a very established idea. Uh, and I was really aware of that when I was a kid. So as an adult, I had to sort of like undo that and be like, well, this, you know, it's about the song and does it sound interesting and does it sound cool? And are you presenting something new and honest and authentic and blah, blah, blah. And the rules of tuning and pitch and stuff aren't there anymore. And um, that took me a while. And I, yeah, as I say, I still, you know, in the studio, I'm comfortable. In front of people, or if I'm recording vocals for someone else's song, I'm still like, really? You want me to sing? <laughs> like, <laughs> I don't know if this is a good idea. Um, so, yeah, two different, very different experiences. Um, and what about, like, shows as a, you know, as, as yourself as you are now? Like, so for the first album, you were singing on stage. Uh, how, was, how was that getting going? Uh, um, terrifying, absolutely yeah. terrifying. And uh, I covered the vocal in a lot of effects and there was backing track vocal and like I didn't have proper monitoring. I sort of like didn't take it seriously as a way to protect myself from it. Um, and But it's, it's it, it, a lot of it is just to do with feeling safe and secure and now... I don't, you know, I've just started touring again live and I realised that my sense of self is not at all attached to what an audience thinks of my vocal. But when I was 25, it was quite attached to that. Um, So I would, you know, I was quite scared of exposing myself on stage. And now if a thousand people want to tell me I'm shit at singing, fucking have at it, lads. I don't care. Like, whatever. <laughs> like, <laughs> I've already really, got your money. Yeah, I've got other <laughs> things going on in my life and um, it's fine if you think I'm crap. And I'm not. I'm not crap. So, like, the fear is just dissolved. I'm, I'm okay with it. 
I think that's some of the stuff that I had to sort of deal with in the in the 10 years between albums. I mean, teaching yourself not to care is a great way of dealing with nerves. Like, yeah. Just, yeah, just, yeah. Just like ramming it down your own throat that like, like the outcome right here doesn't really matter in, in the grand scheme of things. Like who gives a shit if this fails? I mean, that yeah. can be extremely powerful, I think. And, and you can do that through um, caring, realising that you care about other things way more. So it doesn't have to be like a I don't give a fuck moment. It can be like, I really do give a fuck about this and this. And what it means is that I'm taking the pressure off this moment of being on stage because I am prioritising other things that really, really matter to me. Yeah, it's been it's been great. And I think if you if you're able if you're able to take the pressure off yourself, I think off very often that's when you perform the best as well. Mm-hmm. When one performs the best, I mean certainly that's my experience. If I can like find a level of relaxation, then yeah, that's, that's when good things happen. Well, I think it's worth noting at this point then that like a lot of the ways that we do that is through drinking and drugs in our community um and certainly i used to do that through having a few drinks before i went on stage and a couple of drinks on stage and then a couple more after (laughs) um and i i'm i don't drink anymore i haven't had a drink for a year or so about almost a year and i was really interested in what would happen on stage without um any dutch courage and actually been much easier um because i'm just like present and i'm there and i'm not checked out and i'm like in the moment and when you're in the moment it turns out it's not all that bad it's actually quite funny and quite fun and not scary um so to anyone listening who's wondering (laughs) about (laughs) that sort of thing why did you stop drinking um i've been thinking about it for a while i was also thinking about like all the things that i wanted to do in 2022 that i would need to be on good form and i recognized that alcohol just sort of is a negative thing doesn't give me energy doesn't give me anything positive really just makes me tired and anxious um yeah uh and then one of the big ones for me was like it, do, it doesn't have anything to teach me anymore. Like, I think when I was a kid, you know, the first couple of times getting really drunk with friends and stuff was sort of eye-opening. And there were experiences that I would have that I wouldn't have through anything else. And I, that, that's not possible, really. I've been to all the parties. I've done all the things. I've been in all the secret rooms and had all the experiences and, like, whatever. Like, I've done it. It's It, it doesn't... It's not a positive thing in my life now. Um, And getting rid of it has just been remarkable. I'm really lucky. I wouldn't class myself as a sort of like traditional alcoholic. I wasn't addicted to booze. I definitely used it as 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 a support system for myself. But I wouldn't get into any trouble if I didn't have a drink for a week. Um, But I did drink a lot for 20 years yeah i mean you can still have a drink problem i mean i made the mistake of describing myself as an alcoholic once in an interview and i'd i'd uh developed a extremely unhealthy relationship with alcohol on, on the dj circuit yeah 
uh-huh. where I would um, I would make sure I was like just one or two drinks in when I started, but then I would then you know, get through most of a bottle of vodka yeah. over the course of a you know quite a long DJ set. But I mean, even so, you know, it's like that's not healthy. And I've since sort of discovered that of all the things, I mean, I've been a fairly enthusiastic drug taker since I was 14, 15. And I've, you know, through a process of elimination, I've just discovered that alcohol is by far the worst thing for me, sort of neurologically. Like it really I'm going to back you up on that. I think it's so shit and we're kidding ourselves that it's like a harmless, fun thing to do. It's so bad for you. <laughs> so yeah, yeah, yeah 100%. I agree. And I, I um, quit, went to T-Total and I did about 18 months. And it was fantastic for, well, the, the first, what my, my experience of it was the first six months was just an incremental, like just escalator of positivity. Yeah. And it, like every week, some, some new thing seemed to happen, which just <laughs> like, you know, some kind of feeling which I hadn't felt since my childhood or whatever would just come back to me or, or you know, my sleep would just like reach some new level of just incredible um, <laughs> restfulness or, or whatever. And then after about six months, it plateaued out and it was fine. And, and then it's just like, yeah, I feel great. And then for the next six months, I just felt great. And then over the course of the subsequent six months, it sort of just leveled off and I was just like, mm, okay, this is fine. But I, to, to your point about, you know, you feel like you've got all you can from it. And that's absolutely how I felt after about 18 months. I felt like I was missing a little bit socially and, and, you know, like in the context of not being a quote unquote proper alcoholic, like a good, very good friend of mine has recently, um, outed himself as it were as a quote-unquote proper alcoholic and he, and he genuinely was and is doing the AA thing and and like you know it was absolutely necessary for him to do it and and all power to him and I'm extremely proud of him um, for managing to get through it's nearly a year now for him and I wasn't at that stage and therefore I was sort of able to say oh okay maybe I will have a drink every now and then and that was nice for a bit but then I I mean, this is going back a few years now and I now go through stages where if I drink regularly, so if, say if I have a few weeks where I have a, have a drink a couple of times a week, it really just, it has such a negative effect on my overall mental, like just yeah. like how I feel generally. I mean, I am definitely sort of prone to sort of depression generally but those 18 months where I, I was teetotal I did not have any of that stuff at all yeah you know? so I so as, as I said as a through a process of elimination like, and, and and during those 18 months I would occasionally do drugs I've never been a big weed smoker but you know I'll take ease occasionally and, and that kind of thing and it was just it's just not it doesn't do those things to my brain you know like it doesn't unlock those feelings anyways anyway yeah, amazing. Well, no, that's great. I've I, I resonated with all of that. Um, yeah, I think look, I think that there's there's a couple of elephants in the room with dance music and our community, and one of them that we refuse to talk about is um, the the getting fucked factor, and on the side of that addiction. And I think that often we look at it. We you know we, we're prepared to occasionally look at it through the through the addiction lens and be like, oh, you know, we need to be aware that so-and-so has got a problem or whatever. But 
most people are going out to clubs and going to festivals to get fucked. And nobody wants to admit that. <clears throat> it's a huge factor in our economy, in our community, in the music making, in the business of it. And, and the first thing we need to do is just admit that at least <laughs> before yeah. we can like, you know, start looking at whether it's a positive or a negative thing or if it needs, if we need to be involved in it at all. But we should at least admit that that's like <laughs> the, as big as the music, if not bigger. Oh, for, for sure. I mean, in dance music in particular, I mean, yeah. it very arguably is bigger. I mean, I think stuff like doing drugs testing in clubs and all that kind of thing. And when that first started happening, I thought it was great. And I think it is, it's, it is great. You know, places like Warehouse Project take that kind of stuff seriously, you know, because it is a big part of the culture. That's just the reality. Right. So your album, uh, the new one, which we've been skirting around for the entire <laughs> an hour and 45 minutes <laughs> so far uh tell me about recording it let's get in some technical geeky stuff mm -hmm. um did you well did you go into studios did you how much of it did you do i, I don't know tell me tell me how you recorded the album <laughs> so almost all of it was made in my studio in la um which was uh, how you know a room in my house um, had <clears throat> a few synths, a few uh, had like a Yamaha CP80, which is a, a, a basically a a baby grand piano with a pickup inside it, with pickups inside it, and a Rhodes and a bunch of guitar pedals. And uh, what synths was I using? A Prophet nine thingy-majiggy or something and I didn't really like the profit and uh OB6 and an MS20 and a my microphone that I used on the whole record was a um SM58 or whatever uh so yeah and then my laptop um almost all of it was made like that on your own yeah most of the time and the few friends came in to help on some tracks uh, but everything was sort of started and finished on my own. There might be, you know, I'd get stuck with something and I'd bring someone in to help push it forwards or um, or whatever I needed. Did you mix it as well? I did, yeah. Okay, now I am getting quite bitter and jealous about this <laughs> because <laughs> I said at the top that I wasn't, but I mean, I, this is the kind of thing that I've I've aspired to do, and particularly this kind of music. And I, I very much fetishize the idea of the kind of auteur songwriter producer who is able to do this on their own. So, so well done. Thank you. Well done for this, because it really is a great record. Um, there's some really like genuinely evocative stuff on there, which really resonated with me, you know, on a, you know, quite a deep level, actually. So, Thanks a lot. Yeah, no, genuinely. Um, and OK, so. Were the songs written, or how like how did the writing process like interact with the recording process? Did you write the songs first, or what? Um, most of the time, how it works for me and has done for a few years now is, <clears throat> I'll start with um, a, a chord progression or like a bass line or something like a, a you know four bars or eight bar thing that I've found or you know that i'm fanning around and i come across some chords on the piano or or or, or a groove or something 
And if I find something that catches my imagination there, then I'll start to write lyrics and melodies and stuff. And then at that point, I approach it as a songwriter and I'll go to the piano and I'll work out probably the whole song. Um, certainly in terms of melody and, and harmony, so chords and, and stuff. Uh, and then I'll start producing it and laying it out. And and it takes me anything from like, you know, a week to five years to do a song. Um, and I mean the five years, like not as, not as a joke, like they're definitely songs that I've come back to and come back to and come back to. And I've always known that they're not right and they're not right. And like, it isn't, I haven't cracked it. And then one day, three years later from the day I started it, I'll be like, oh, okay, I need to do this. And it opens it up. And then I'm in a new process with it and I'm thinking about it and it has new energy and I'm, and then and then two years later I finished it. So that really does <laughs> that really does happen as stupid as it sounds. And then other times it's it's much simpler and doesn't take that amount of time. I mean I I think I read something about Leonard Cohen spending like thirty years on certain songs. So okay. <laughs> I think five five probably okay. Five's fine. In that context. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So did you know how you were gonna be releasing it? before you were in the process of, of writing? Like at, w- at what point did it become clear how the campaign was going to run and, you know, the, the structure of, of, of putting it out into the world? No, I think, I think in my gut I always knew that I wanted to self-release um, and then that became a sort of reality as I started experimenting from about 2018 onwards. Um, there were a few sort of indies that I sort of, you know, had very brief conversations with um, and the deals that they were sort of like whispering subtly about to me were just fucking shit. And um, so I just didn't really entertain that. It's mad, isn't it? How bad like deals are, even from labels, which, you know, you'd think would be just, you know, quite amenable these days. And then offering you just fucking bullshit. Yeah, the perception that we, that about, especially around what what we call indies, is so funny because everyone thinks they must be artist friendly, but they're <laughs> yeah. not. Um, with exception, of course. So please don't come at me, A and R's. I already annoy these people <laughs> enough already. Um, yeah. I wasn't really planning like the campaign until I finished. I finished the record. Um, because the music industry changes so much and like how to release an album changes so much and like where my career was at kept on shifting as well. So it was really like at the beginning of this year that I started putting together a plan. Okay, and how long had been the writing and recording process then before before that? I think that most of the, well, look, most of the rec- it's it's really hard because I think I made an album that never came out in about 2016 and then... Uh, I think that, you know, most of what this album is happened from like 2018 onwards. Um, yeah, but there's a, I, sounds so stupid, but there's a huge amount of music on my hard drives that I would love to release and finish from the sort of fallow years. Um, and I, and I hope, and I hope to do that. The pot, the posthumous box set, you know, (laughs) (laughs) I'll write that in my will. (laughs) 
Okay, well, I mean, it's a good amount of time. I mean, there's 17 tracks on it, right? So, you know, there's a, there's a lot of music there. So, I mean, yeah, like three years is a... Is a I think... Well, it's it's entirely subjective, right? Because I think sometimes, like, really writing fast can, can be great. For my own experience, like, often I spend a lot of time going around the houses waiting for it to happen, and then it all happens really quickly. Mm-hmm. Definitely. And I often... But it's it's almost like you can't do it without having that <laughs> long period of frustration and knowing that what you're doing is you know not that great, and you just got to wait for it to happen. That for me, yeah, anyway. yeah. I think the creative moments do happen very fast, and what I spend too much time doing, and I've got much better at it, is making decisions. Um, and I think really the skill that I need to improve is my decision-making skill. And when I'm, I'm already listening back to this album because I'm doing the live versions and stuff and like looking at the stems rather than at the sessions. And I see how much unnecessary music is in the music because I couldn't make decisions about which part to make the main part in a section. So instead of making a decision about it, I'll just put like three parts in there, all slightly quieter than they should be. <laughs> Um, and that, that's about being sort of clinically confident and being like, okay, this is what I'm going to do here. And this is what I'm going to do here. Um, and being really sure of yourself. And I, and and that's where I waste a lot of time. I think, I think like working on your own definitely can exacerbate those kinds of tendencies. In, In the rare occasions that I've worked with other people, I've found that I find the tendency to do that is is dissipated or or certainly if you if you're working with someone who you really trust and yeah you know enabling you yourself to um have them say no that's shit let's just do something else without that section can be extremely liberating i found yeah. that but i haven't done a lot of that frankly and i i, I wish i'd done more uh, candidly but um okay so the campaign then Tell me in detail how it is constructed. So you, you mentioned earlier that you had management company working on it and obviously there's PR. So for, for, for people who are listening who are scratching their heads as to how you put together this kind of independent campaign, tell me in, in detail how yours is, is put together. Okay. Um, <clears throat> so f- first of all, full disclosure, over the course of this album there has been management, there hasn't been management, and there is management again. So I've been through a situation there. No, 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 nothing, nothing bad, but, you know, just like any any uh, business, if the relationship isn't working, like, you, you just need to stop doing it. Um, so I uh, work with The Orchard. They're my distribution company. Um, and they've been awesome, um, really have loved working with them. They have very clear, uh, ideas of what work they do and what work they don't do. And there's no sort of fluff around it. So, and as a distribution company, you know, they don't promise to do anything extra. They, they, they're very enthusiastic about things, but they don't sort of like claim to be able to do things they can't do. So basically, they give me a budget or rather I go to them and I say, this is how much I think I need to spend to make this album work and how much I want to spend on, on, you know, mastering, marketing, PR, radio, blah, blah, blah. 
and we have a little argument about that and then we do a deal. Um, I then take that money and like fine tune my budget, go and find the people who can do the work that I need doing for the prices that I've got um, and start it rolling. So then the people that I have involved um, are PR in or was working with because the campaign's kind of finished now but PR in in the UK um, PR in North America have smaller and they're not smaller but like slightly different PR arrangements in Germany, Spain and France um, then radio uh, pluggers working in the UK radio pluggers working in the same plugger is actually doing Europe and North America and that's all I could afford there. I would have loved to have um, done something in South America. I would have loved to have done something in like Southeast Asia. Um, and then uh, the biggest cost is the visual side of things. So the sort of like creative direction, the artwork, the photos, the press photos, the music videos, um, all the sort of like canvases, you know, for Spotify and all that visual world is definitely the biggest chunk of the budget. And it's crazy the scale of that stuff because I know because I've been there like what what dance music spends on that and it's not really much at all. And I know what like big pop artists spend on that and it's millions and millions and millions and millions of dollars. So like... I'm not going to tell you what I spent on it because it would sound crazy to some people because it's a lot of money and crazy to some people because it's nothing. Um, so out of context, it just doesn't really make sense. But um, I, in my mind, for what I got, I hardly spent any money and I worked with a really great person to help me get all that stuff together. Um, and obviously in the current landscape, like your visual language is, is really important and um, I'm really happy with how that that's turned out. Um, and who else was involved? Then some some like online marketing stuff. So basically, and this I think is probably the most essential part to any record release in this era um, is uh, like your your online ads um, and like running ads on Facebook and Instagram and running ads on YouTube and stuff. That has to happen. Let me let me ask you about that specifically because this is definitely I mean you're absolutely right to say this it's important. What I've always struggled with uh, as a kind of label owner, you know, selling other people's records as well as my own, is how to gauge like the efficacy of that kind of advertising. I mean, there are obviously metrics that you get out of it, and there are you know things which are deemed to be significant, but how yeah tell me tell me what you think about that oh man i think it's i think it's really hard i think it's really 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 hard to gauge it but i'm certain that it's valuable <laughs> um <laughs> right this is look, what, what you're trying to do always is 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 um give your existing listeners and fans uh something that they really enjoy and an experience that they really enjoy, like the ways the way you're releasing it and the music itself. 
and also reach a new audience because we all know at this point about how like echo chambery the echo chamber is and it can be really hard to get out so there might be millions of people there are millions of people who would love your music they're just not hearing it so like how do you get to them like um even if you're an artist who's being supported by six music uh like great the six music listenership are amazing they are all massive music fans they all buy tickets and buy records and da 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 it's really awesome but there are also millions of people in the UK who would love your song that don't listen to six music so how do you get to them and there are certain sort of like known sort of rules within marketing and and one of them is the like you need to show somebody like something four or five times before they recognize that it exists and so the first time your instagram ad might flash up in front of somebody they're just going to scroll straight past it might be the second time as well the third time they might be like oh i've seen this a couple of times oh, i recognize the name and then they start putting two and two together and then when they hear the song at their mate's house they're like oh yeah okay you know start putting the pieces together and maybe check your stuff out and I know that that sounds cynical and I know that that sounds opposite again to our like romantic vision of the music industry but it's a necessity I don't think we've really romanticized it that much over the course of this conversation okay not in this chat (laughs) (laughs) not in this chat but I know there's people listening who just want to put out white labels and think that like that's it yeah 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 um uh you you you've got a market you've got to market yourself and it's not and it's not directly measurable and it's, okay so with this album on the one hand it was a success when i just announced it because my existing fans were happy about it is it a success since its release i think i'll only find that out in like a year's time and I wouldn't try and measure it right now. Like, I'm happy with the music, I'm happy that I put it out, and I'm happy with the way that it, put, that it was put out. Um, did, is it like a cultural success I, uh, in any way? Like, I, I will only know that in a year. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's really sort of indicative of the way the music industry works now that you said that the, the campaign is essentially over, and yet the album only came out last month. Yeah. But obviously, the, obviously there had been multiple singles before that so my question i guess is with regards to your partners like how much of the decision making process of that side of the structure of the campaign was um or how much input did you have and how much were you know how much pressure did you have to do it in that kind of a way and mm, that that side of it generally um i mean i speak I would speak to everybody and get the gauge their feedback on things, but the decisions were mine to make. And uh, here's an example of that. We The album was supposed to come out in July, at the end of July. And in June, I um, had a look at the like pre-sale figures for vinyl, the pre-order figures for vinyl. And it was like 250 vinyl. And I was like, this isn't working. Like whatever we've done so far isn't connecting because it should be a higher number than that. I know it should be a higher number than that. And every time I'm speaking to people, on top of that, every time I'd speak to people, to, to listeners or whatever, and I'd say I'm putting out an album, they'd be like, oh, really? You're putting out an album? So I knew that the messaging wasn't working. I knew that. 
I couldn't work out why, but I was like, this isn't connecting. The campaign isn't connecting. So I, for, for that, and also the manufacturing was fucking up, I pushed the album back by two months and I hired a new uh, online marketing team to work on it. And they did a better job. There was more time and we started connecting the dots and my um, pre-sales started getting to the point that felt like it was working. And that's not me being like greedy. That's just like, that's like knowing that you've got a good team of players on the pitch, but you're not scoring any goals. Like something's fucking wrong. Someone's in the wrong position. <laughs> I can't believe I'm doing a football analogy, but like, <laughs> it's not, it's not, you're not getting the, the, the results from, from the means that you've got there, the sum of the, all the things together. This is the, um, if I can just interrupt you here, um, this is what's so challenging about releasing your own music because making those decisions when it's your own art is so tough. It's so tough to be objective. Yeah, but man, if a record label had called me up and said, hey, we're going to push the album back by two months, I would have been like, I would have been furious <laughs> because <laughs> I want that to be my decision. Um, and yeah, that yeah, might sure. be my ego, probably is, but like I just, it's really hard how much you already are pushed around by this industry. And I just, yeah, look, I mean, you've, I had to do it. You obviously took the right decision, right? Yeah. Um, but that's, that's because, I mean, as you have been saying throughout this conversation, you are equipped with the tools to make that decision and make it you know, go down the correct path, right? And, um, you have to be smart. It's not like you have to be smart. You have to be, you have to have the knowledge to be able to make that kind of decision. And the fog of war, as it were, is that much thicker when it's your own creative output that you're trying to sell, basically. Yeah, 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 definitely, definitely. Yeah, okay. Um. Right. So you think in a year you'll be able to judge it? Yeah, because... And this happened with my first album as well. Like, I only understood where it had got to, who it had reached a couple of years afterwards. Um, and I think we're in a different era now, but I, I still think that I'll only know whether this record impacted people. Because look, there's release week, right? And during release week, it's going to be your existing fans that listen to your music and then a few people who are curious, probably because they're in the music industry, and then a few people who chance upon it. Then the album starts doing its own work and people start playing it to their friends and people start falling in love with it and sharing it or listening to it 10 times or whatever, or not. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> As the case may be. <laughs> yeah, or not. So that's when it starts its own actual sort of journey um, as a piece of music in the world. Um, and does it have, you know, you find out if it's got legs, are people still listening to it in a year? Like, are people who like it now going to be still enjoying it? Um, and I think that's the really interesting bit. Yeah, I mean, I was just going to say, touring it is absolutely crucial to that, right? Yeah. And as you said, like, you've only just started the tour, but the, you know, the album campaign is finished, you know, which is, a, which is you know, 
on some level like remarkable but but just going out and taking it to people is such an important part of putting it in context and an album campaign can be made by a tour yes and to clarify to clarify that sort of album campaign is finishing the elements of it are so like you know i can't and that's and it's budget basically i can't keep plugging it at radio because i can't afford that and i can't keep trying to do press about it because I can't afford PR anymore. Like, the, I've, I've run out of money. So that's the reason that those elements have finished. I, I personally will keep shouting about it for the rest of my life and will tour it and play songs from it for as long as I can. Um, uh, but, yeah, it's really difficult to keep shouting about it. And... and I see myself included a lot of us musicians struggle with this thing of sort of like posting about the same piece of music more than once because we feel like we're sort of like you know taking our shirt off in front of people it's a bit like well you don't put it away and and (laughs) but actually you have to do it one and two your fans and your people looking at your Instagram, they don't mind, man. They're not bothered by it. They like seeing you be proud of your work and own it. Um, again, I think this is like my Britishness coming through that I get a bit embarrassed about that sort of thing well, necessarily. I mean, this is a conversation that I constantly have with new artists that we're you know, working with on the label. And it's definitely not just a British thing. I think, I think people... Uh, musicians are very reluctant to self-promote and like the concept of self-promotion is is seen and again maybe this is a slightly less true in in different you know different territories uh to use an uncomfortable term but i mean the general reluctance is 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 pretty high and i have to have to just be honest and just say look who else is gonna talk about your work yeah you know like oh, it's really. got to come from you. Mm-hmm. You've got to be confident and, and and you've got to be willing to shout, as you said, about mm-hmm. what you're doing. Anyway, we've done well over two hours. This has been fantastic. I just <laughs> um, have one more, yeah. which is, well, you said that you love albums and albums are great. So just throw me a few albums that you are, uh, maybe a few, a few albums that inspired the latest album. Oh, um... That's tricky with what inspired the latest album in terms of like an album format. I'll tell you what, w- w- one record I'd like to shout out that sort of like um, helped me with the process of this album, and even though it was a couple of years ago, was the new Avalanches album. Mm, and yep. I remember listening to that and I felt their freedom and their artistic freedom coming through and it sounded like it was a really easy album to make to my ears there was like an ease to it and it was like relaxed and I don't know how to describe it like the songs flowed into each other there weren't strict structures and and it really took me to a place like a sound world and that um, I found really useful and I do recommend that album if people haven't listened to it I think it's really fun um Going back, I think most of the records that sort of still resonate with me are albums that I fell in love with as a teenager and and sort of still are rattling around in the back of my head. Um, and I go back to as sort of like touchstones to sort of remind myself why I love the idea of making an album. 
Um, and one of those would be, and I was listening to it again the other day because I was in Philadelphia, um, is Jill Scott's, um, who is Jill Scott, um, Jill Scott's first album. And I heard that when I was like 14 or something. And, and that was like a real awakening for me. Um, it was definitely a moment where I was like, right, yep, I want to make albums when I'm older. <laughs> this is amazing. <laughs> um, and, and, I, and I do think going back to those things that when you are becoming who you are going to be as an adult when you're a teenager and you fall in love with things, I think it's great to go back to those things that you fell in love with because it's such an amazing time in your life. Um, of like yeah. self-discovery and and and, and that person that like 16 year old is still inside you um and they're still enthusiastic about the same shit you just have to go and give them a wave and touch base yeah absolutely well that's a great place to finish so thanks so much for doing this man it's been awesome thank you that's good good i feel like we could have dangerously rambled on <laughs> for a while longer and again i'm uh, i I'm very aware that like I sound um, kind of jaded about this business. And um, I, I just, again, want to say like, it's, it's not that it's that I'm really protective over artists and creativity and because I value it really highly. So the, the business stuff is all because I want people to be looked after and I want people to have long, fruitful careers, putting beautiful work into the world. Yeah, man, well, you're doing great work. So I hope it all goes well. And I hope to, uh, hope to see a show. In fact, I'm going to try and make one. Thank you. That was Totally Enormous Extinct Dinosaurs, a.k.a. Tease, a.k.a. Orlando. And I just really, really enjoyed that conversation. It was so interesting. He's got so many great insights. We agree on a lot of stuff. It was great to get a little bit of disagreement too in there, which always makes it a little bit more fun. And yeah, great conversation. Really, really great one. These are just the kinds of conversations that I want to have on this podcast. And lots of people like the podcast. I think it's fair to say. I get so many compliments for it. But I mean, like these are the conversations that I like having, you know, and it's just a privilege to be able to sit down for a couple of hours with someone like Orlando and just chat about this stuff, you know? It really, really is. I am privileged to be able to do it, and I'm really happy that so many of you are enjoying it. So, Patreon pledge drive, get on board with that. It's a bad boy t-shirt, musicality tier, 10 bucks a month, it's pretty cheap. I mean, you know, if you're enjoying what we're doing here, then we'd be extraordinarily grateful for your support and just your participation in the community too, you know? Like I said, it is a great community on Discord and we'd love to have a few more of you in there. So, yeah, please do. And then on the solidarity tier too, yeah, 50% off Bandcamp, that's not limited to anything, so you can just scoop up the whole Bandcamp thing for half price if you wish. Okay... I think we're done. There's going to be a bunch of stuff on the Patreon feed, like I said, so that's another reason to sign up. There's a full schedule this week of bonus content going up. But if you're not down for that, that's also cool. Leave us a review or a rating. Follow the Spotify playlist and join us in the Discord, hotflushrecordings.com slash Discord. And uh, yeah, that's it. I'm done. I've had flu this week and I'm knackered. So... See you same time, same place next week for the next episode of the Not A Diving Podcast. Thank you.
Moskova.